Hello and welcome to The Stack. We have a selection of delights for you. We speak with the editor of one of Switzerland's oldest magazines, plus a newspaper dedicated to airline maps and a photozine dedicated to the wonderful city of Rio. Enjoy the show. From Midori House in London, this is The Stack, 30 minutes of print industry analysis, and I am Fernando Augusto Pacheco. We start the show welcoming Christian Nolle, founder of Direction of Travel, a newspaper about the culture of flying, filled with vintage airline maps and interesting stories connected to the aviation world. Each issue focuses on different airlines or regions of the world. It's a thing of beauty. It was great to welcome Christian to Midori House. So, Direction of Travel, I've sort of, I think... Ultimately, this is like a love letter to the visual world of flying. It's a product that grew out of my own collection of maps, basically. You know, I've been buying these and collecting maps for like 15-odd years. And they've just been stacking up at home in my studio, you know, box after box. And then you start sort of organizing them into like, oh, this is the Swiss Air, this is the Pan Am stuff. And then at some point, I had this idea, hey, why don't I combine newspapers and maps? I mean, it's obviously a perfect marriage. You know, you have, you can go big. It feels very close to the material of the map. It, you know, it's a bit fragile. It's not precious. So I did a couple of sort of prototypes, I would call it. I was just like, this is amazing. This works really well. I was super excited. And I just started like, I had this name already lying, sort of thinking, I just sort of reserved in the back of my head going, I need, this needs to be about something about flying. I'm not sure what it will be. So I was like, aha, there we go. So I could sort of pull direction of travel down as sort of a name and attach it to the newspaper. And then somehow I ended up with this, Product which has sort of taken all my life now. And we will talk more about it. But uh, first of all, I know you brought some props as well, some of the stuff we've seen in the, in the newspaper. But one question, why the airlines today, why it doesn't feel as beautiful as perhaps some of this kind of historic things that we see at your page? Is it because perhaps we don't understand what's beautiful today or perhaps they're not paying their designers very well? That could be true. It's also, I think, it's sort of the the way things just are moving. It's just the way that culture is moving to some extent. Not all of it. There's still a very interesting space for print, I think. But like, you know, take, for instance, Finnair as an example. You know, they have reintroduced this. Uh, they give out a diploma for flights across the North Pole. It's the tradition they used to do back during the Cold War, which is a really lovely thing, a really beautiful little thing to do again. And it cost them nothing. You know, it's a piece of A4. I mean, nice cardboard and whatnot. But I think ultimately it's just, it's also their bottom lines are squeezed, you know. Obviously, all these things used to be made for their premium audience, and now they do other things for their premium audience, you know. So I think it's just a shift as well, but that's not to say that there's still space for it, you know. I think so as well. I have in front of me Volume 3, which is kind of an Alps special, right? I think the focus here was Alitalia and Swiss Air. And first of all, right on the cover of Directional Travel, I love this poster from Alitalia, kind of... I think it's looking like to a kind of almost a tropical paradise. It's a thing of beauty. But yeah, so for every issue, you kind of focus on perhaps an airline or a region. Yeah, so it tends to start out with like, you know, I think like for this one, I was like, okay, I have two airlines, Alitalian Swiss Air, and they sort of divided by the Alps. So I thought that's sort of how I'm going to sort of focus the issue. And then you sort of start thinking of what maps go in there and what go together. And also for me, more and more, what kind of stories I want to write. Because... The newspaper started out just 
with maps predominantly, lots and lots of maps. And over time, it's sort of as any other project that you work on, it evolves, right? Sort of naturally, and you learn about your audience and you learn about your medium. You know, you go like, what do people want? What are they interested in? And also, what am I interested in? My interest, you know, develops. And so now the there's lots of essays in there as well. And there's like, you know, a couple of artist projects as well, which is sort of culturally, I feel like it's got a bit more meat on the bone, if that makes sense. Absolutely. For example, it's quite fun. There was a piece on, on John Paul's the Second's travel because, <laughs> you know, he used to like kiss when he arrived in a certain country or so. That was a fun story and another great map as well. Yeah, no, that's, I mean, so that was a map I made for this issue because just like trying to, I knew about these kisses, basically, these consecrations, as you would call them, where he would arrive and every time he landed in a new country, he would then, you know, walk down the steps of the Alitalia DC-10 and then kiss the ground. And I thought it would be really great to sort of dig through the Vatican archives and just kind of find all the sort of references to where it's been and then kind of try to find out where there's photographs and where there's not and then try to sort of collate it all together. And you're selling, actually, this map, because I did have a look at your website. So besides, I mean, I think if people go to your website, they can also buy some prints as well, right? That's right, yeah. So this is, you know, this uh, map of the Pope is also available as print. There's also various other little things that I've done over time. Um, so yeah, it's like, it's you know, it's, it's the paper itself, which is sort of the core product. And then there's like little bits on the side that sort of growing slowly, you know, sort of kind of little things I think people might like, you know, have put on their wall. I'm very glad as well to say that you brought some props to us because I was curious. I wanted to see some of the, the those, those things of beauty. If you don't mind going through perhaps some of the pieces you have in front of you. So I think it'll be great to sort of start with one of my favorite, which is this hand fan by Japan Airlines from the 1950s. So they would hand these out to their passengers or like probably the people in first class when they would cross the North Pole or the equator or the international dateline. And they were just on one side, there would be like, you know, you could type in your flight, your date and your name, and then it could be signed by the captain. And then the, on the back, it would have this sort of beautiful Japanese painting. God, where and do you I, find this? So, I mean, there's a lot of digging online on various auction sites. You know, I spent a lot of time on there kind of trying to work out what is interesting. More and more, I find things inside old magazines as well. So I would buy up old in-flight magazines and go, okay, there's something interesting here, like old Air France issues or something like that, you know. So it's a, it's become a little bit of an obsession over the years, naturally, because this, you know, you, I love getting these things in the mail because you don't really know what you're going to get. Sometimes I'm just like, ah, okay. And then there's days when I open my mail and I go, wow, okay, this is incredible. <laughs> Tell us more. I mean, the next one is from Air France. So this is it's a lovely... Again, lots of this stuff is from the 1950s. This is just, you know, a beautiful sort of Air France world map. You know, it doesn't look like much on the outside, but when you actually open it up, it just, it folds open to be this gorgeous kind of, and it's, what's really remarkable here as well is the quality of the print. I mean, you can, you know, you can feel it. It's like, it's really nice. And it's like, you know, it's at least 70 years old. Wow. Um, and I think that's, it's a testament to the quality, to the amount of detail I've gone through as well. And how well connected they were already back well, back then. Exactly. And they, like they would, you know, you would find maps these days of some airlines that flew to destinations back then they don't do now. You know, it's just, it doesn't work for them financially. But back then, because they were sort of state-owned, they did it because they sort of had to. You know, they would fly to their old colonies or that kind of thing. And now, obviously... That's mostly not the case. So, And also, it's interesting, what I like about your work as well, Christian, if you don't mind, perhaps I'll be mentioning some of your other projects. But you were the founder of Light Flights as well, right? That's right, yeah. So, so it's quite interesting that you are, you know, 
a big fan of flying, of airlines, of the history of it, but you're also looking a little bit through the future as well, right? Yeah, and I think it's one of the things I'm sort of trying to kind of bridge with this product because I don't want it just to be looking back at the old maps. I also kind of mm. want to look ahead. I think that's really key. And I think with Light Flights, we did this project, which was basically it's a search engine where you can search for a flight and it will rank results based on their carbon emissions. Now everybody does it. We launched it right after COVID. So our timing wasn't great, but it was just the idea of marriage to like carbon emissions and flights. And I still think, you know, finding a way for us to sort of not fly. I, I don't like the word sustainable or like the wording sort of sustainable aviation because it, it's not sustainable, but mm. a better way of doing it or a more, I don't know, we need another word for it, basically. I agree. <laughs> um, and I don't want to feel like a greenwashing, nor do I want to sort of, I don't know, point fingers. You know, it's got to be somewhere in the middle. The word sustainable is a bit overused at yeah. times. So I think it's correct what, yeah. what, what you're saying in yeah. a way as well. So what next? How often does direction of travel comes out, actually? So twice a year, approximately. Mm -hmm. I'm working on the next one, which is coming together. And then I'm sort of already now in the back of my head. I'm, you know, you, when you work on magazines, you're always thinking like two or three issues ahead, trying to map out what do you need to write? What kind of maps do you need? Where are the gaps? Which is always the sort of the thing you kind of go like, okay, and where are the gaps in my projects, you know? So I'm sort of working on one for, I think, early summer, sort of springtime is coming out the next one. And then again, there'll probably be another one just before Christmas this year. In terms of visual identity, I mean, we're talking about Air France, Swiss Air, Alitalia. Do you have a favorite, the one that you really connected and perhaps, I don't know, that started your passion towards those things? I mean, I think the maps that and the sort of products that the things I come across that are most interesting tend to have some kind of political sort of edge mm. to them. Something where like, like Cold War maps are always kind of interesting to look at. You kind of look at them and you go like, oh, so Aeroflot did fly through New York. And you go, okay, that's interesting. How did they do that? You know, so that's, I think maps like that, they tell such an interesting story. You know, it's not just, oh, it's a beautiful visual, but there's a really rich story to sort of unpack in the background. My favorites change all the time. You know, they like the one day there'll be some odd Italian airline that I've just got a little tiny map on. I've been obsessed with that for a while. And then it, something else comes up and I go, that's really interesting, you know. Well, continue showing us so, your package of goodies so, there. Yeah, so my other little thing, this is really nice. So Pan Am used to hand oh, this wow. out to kids on the airplane. I just oh love this. Oh my gosh. This is brilliant. So it's, a, it's sort of shaped like a little sort of briefcase and it's got little stickers on it and that kind of thing. So Two happy Pan Am, pandas as well. Yeah, the Pan Am official flying fun kit. And it's just brilliant because it's got little drawing books in it and it, it's just, it's, it's a real sort of, it's done with love. And if you see the kind of stuff they give to kids these days, this is just, you know, you can sort of trace a Pan Am a, a jumbo. Yeah. And it's just beautiful, you know. And it's, like, again, the level of care and attention that's gone into this is, yeah, it's, it's, I love this. It's just, it's also quite fun, you know. Well, uh, I think that's my favorite so far, yeah, actually, yeah. Christian. I really love that. <laughs> so the other thing I brought was just a sort of, to contrast some of this stuff. So this is 1935 a book and map of a single route from Amsterdam all the way to Indonesia. Mm. So it's a whole, so it's basically a guidebook. So it tells you, because obviously they would stop at multiple times down all the way. And at the back, there's a map of the whole route. I mean, this is 1935, so you can sort of unfold it. And it goes all the way oh back. God, And it's incredible that there was actually something that the airline gave. So it's not just kind of a random publisher. It was the airline that produced this. Yeah, this was published by um, KLM back then. And they would give it, so they would basically say, hey, you're, you're flying to us to Indonesia. This is your in-flight magazine, basically, you know. 
Well, final question. I know I have uh, volume three in front of me, Swiss Air and Alitalia, but perhaps from the ones you've published, who know, maybe our listeners will be interested because I, I have a feeling you did so, something. Is it, was it about British Airways or I before did, yes. British Airways? That's right? right. So that was the one that came out last year, which was where I went. I spent a lot of time at the British Airways Museum out by Heathrow. They got this treasure trove of just stuff like magazines, maps, you mentioned it. And I spent a lot of time kind of digging through this archive and found all this incredible rich material and then wrote some essays and edited a newspaper together based around that. So all the sort of, because British Airways was a merger of different airlines and I thought, you know, it'll be make a sort of a great subject. So rich visually as well. Thank you very much, Christian. And for more information, go to directionoftravel.com. And now to Lausanne, the fourth largest city in Switzerland, and the place where the French-language weekly consumer magazine L'Illustre is published. The publication is more than 100 years old, making it one of the earliest magazines published in the country. But since April 2023, L'Illustre has undergone a bit of a makeover, integrating the content of the TV magazine TV8. Monaco's Laura Kramer stopped by L'Illustre's HQ to sit down with editor-in-chief Laurence Desbordais, who oversaw the implementation of the new concept. And she began by telling Laura about what readers can find in the revamped and beloved publication. L'Illustré, it's a picture magazine. It's like, in fact, Paris Match in France. So it's a magazine about lifestyle, but as well life in Swiss Romande and people, of course. I mean, like big people, we try to ask them about what's making the actuality, what's uh, making their life fun. And we try as well to put under the sunlight uh, on to focus on people who are making the creative life of Switzerland, because we have a lot of graphickers who are very good and known all over the world now. We have well-known singers or well-known actors living in Switzerland. So we, we turn around those people and we give them our mic and uh, ask them to tell us some things about their life and their intimacy as well. Since L'Illustre is quite an old magazine because we are 102 years old, we have made a lot of connection and uh, we are trustworthy for them. They trust us and they know that we are not going to be uh, like a boulevard magazine and trash them. We have a very deep link with them. And for the newcomers, we are working as a um, diary for them or something like that. So we try to follow them from the beginning to now. L'Illustre underwent a renewal in April 2023. Can you elaborate on the key aspects of the new concept and how it aims to strengthen the magazine, especially with you coming on as editor-in-chief as well? Yes, because in fact, I was editor-in-chief of TV8 and TV8 in April 2023 merged with L'Illustre for two reasons. L'Illustre is an old magazine and we needed to refresh it a bit with the audience and the readership, more, more, more than the audience. And same for TV8, it was as well, yeah, 100 magazine years old. <laughs> so we put the two whole magazines together. We had quite the same readership, but not on the same thing because TV8 has a lot of TV grids. And in fact, even if we are at an internet era, a lot of people like to have a TV program with most of the essential what has to be seen and the undercover stories about TV people and 
of course, we put focus on uh, TV people from Switzerland. So we decided to merge those two to make uh, one big LC magazine in Swiss Romande. And this is uh, what we did. <laughs> and how has that integration gone in terms of content? Anything you want to focus more into going forward? Anything you've really liked that's gone really well so far? Yes, the thing was the merging was a bit difficult because TV grids are not very nice to see, in fact. <laughs> the aesthetic part is quite complicated, but it has to be there. But we tried to focus because L'Illustré was also following Swiss TV star, TV people. So we talk about them, but in the illustrate part, the lifestyle part now is going after the TV grids. So in fact, we have included the TV grids the and the advice about the TV in between illustrate. It's like a shell. In between, you have the TV grids and around you have l'illustré with this big picture, stories about TV people, but also stories about Swiss people and sad stories or miscellaneous and stories and so on. And it quite make a whole now, but it was a bit tricky at the beginning, but we asked a DA in Germany, in fact, to make those merge as most smoothly as possible. And how do you think the audience has reacted and the readership? Well, we had two audience, in fact, to satisfy. <laughs> the audience of L'Illustré and the audience of TV8. The audience of L'Illustré was quite satisfied with the TV grids because they had some at the beginning in L'Illustré. Not so, f because we have 88 channels. So it's quite a lot and 70 pages. So that's a big. And we, uh, L'Illustré was 84 pages and TV8 was 92 pages. So we didn't merge like that, but we make a 148 pages now. So people from L'Illustré, readership from L'Illustré, they were quite happy. They had more for the same price. But the people from TV8, most of them are old people and they have customs and they have use and they didn't like to have a bigger magazine. <laughs> they wanted their magazine. They wanted to... Uh, see the pages and have only the grids and the, the, the advice to see what to see on TV. And eventually now, after nearly one year, they have been accustomed to the magazine. They are not very happy with it, but some of them still write to us. Well, now I'm happy with it because I have a lot of news about what's happening in Swiss romance, but we still have some uh, people making resistance because they still want their TV with. But now it's, it's a tiny, tiny part of that. I can say now that it has been a struggle with them because they didn't want a plus product, but now they are happy with it. Now everybody in print is facing the big D, the digital era. How are you navigating that in order to keep circulation up, commercial partners on board? How do you navigate those waters? Well, it's quite tricky. And our main managers in Zurich, they are looking to digitalize more and more. So we have here on the same place, the Bleak. And what is going to happen now is we are going to work with the Bleak. This is just to give you an, an example. A big crash, train crash, for example, happens, which has never or quite never happened in Switzerland. But of course, if you are digital, you can tell it right now. So 
we will work with them, the journalist part will work with them and they will be on the Blick, uh, Blick website. But we will, of course, we have to talk about that as well in L'Illustré, but we will do it a step backwards. We are going to see one or two, maybe the drivers or local and things like that. I don't know exactly. So we are now facing it with a digital. It's not L'Illustré Digital, but Blick Digital. And for the advertisement, in fact, advertising part, of course, they prefer the web, but most of them have seen that what is paying now, it's a print. In fact, people like to tear pages and go to the shop or whatever and say, I've seen that because we have a readership which is from 60 and more. We have some young people as well, but young people always go to the digital and young people are not always people who have the money. So print is still alive. We are going to be a niche. But uh, as I've always said, when radio appears, okay, everyone was happy. But when TV appears, most of the people said radio is going to die. Okay, radio is still there. When books were there, and then when you had tablets and so on, and then books are going to die and books are going on very well. So in fact, if we keep on the same track as we are now, big pictures, moving stories, big long movie story, well written, the advertising, the audience, the readership will be maintained. Of course, we have not the same strength as digital, which can react online. And we are in a, in a, in a situation that people like information right away, but it's not digested and we are digesting them and telling them moving story around that. So I hope, hopefully, that we will be here in, um, I won't say 100 years, but in, in, let's say in 20 years, mostly differently, but we will be here. And then just finally, just to wrap up, what does it mean to be headquartered in Lausanne? How big of an advantage has that been for the brand? I guess it's always been here. Lausanne is quite the center of the Swiss Romande, of the French Republic of the Swiss Romande. Regional paper are the one that are the most read, in fact. So if we had settled, let's say, in Geneva, we will be too far away from the other. And if we have settled in Zurich, we have not the same language. But because we have this language frontier, people from Zurich are more keen on what's happening in Germany. People here are more keen on what's happening in France. So we cannot be in Zurich. Our headquarters are in Zurich, but our big, big chief, Michael Rangier, is in Zurich. But he has seen that we had to be in this French-speaking part of Switzerland. And it's a big strength for us. It's, it's a weakness as well, because our leadership is smaller than what is in, uh, in the German-speaking part, of course. But uh, they are faithful and, well, they are growing. Finally, on the show, I stop over in my home country, Brazil, more specifically the incredible city of Rio de Janeiro. Northern Irish photographer William Rice spent a good time in the last years in the city for a project that culminated now in O Novo Rio. O Novo Rio is a magazine format, photozine about Rio's queer communities and its many facets, from the iconic Ipanema Beach to the nature reserves of the far south in the city. The title is being launched at Dover Street Market, London, and it was great to welcome William to the studio. It initially started with the idea of making a zine, which was going to be maybe 30 or 40 pages, 
you know, hand-printed, like an old-fashioned zine, maybe even like a punk zine. But over the last few years, it's kind of grown and grown, and I find it really hard to cut images out, either because I loved so many of them or loved so many of the people I was shooting. And also to remove them would have kind of somehow taken some of the stories away from it. So it ended up being more than I was expecting. It's still not quite a book because I still wanted it to feel slightly homemade because I have made it all myself. I think now I'd describe it as like a, a, a slightly more involved magazine, maybe. It looks and feels like a copy of ID, something like that. So substantial right place to talk about it because we're on the stack. We yeah. love magazines. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and tell us before the you know, the book's called Onovo, or, or the magazine Onovo Rio, the new Rio. Tell us your first experience with Brazil. I mean, what brought you there, actually, okay. to start this project? It started really long time ago in the 80s as a kid when I was living in Ireland. And I saw a film Moonraker. For anyone that doesn't know, it was a really old James Bond mm -hmm. film. And, of course, James Bond in the 70s and 80s, the films were kind of cheesy and kind of terrible in many ways, but they always had these incredible locations. And growing up in Ireland, you're always obsessed with travel because Irish people do. It's part of the culture of the country to leave. Moonraker was filmed in part in Rio. So there were shots from the carnival, which, you know, she looked very exciting. But mainly there was this really dramatic scene shot on a cable car where Bond and his nemesis called Jaws had a had a kind of physical fight on a cable car which was hanging between the ground and Sugarloaf Mountain so there were lots of aerial shots of Rio which to me as a kid it just looked absolutely otherworldly I couldn't even make sense of it it looked like literally like another planet so I grew up in Ireland where it was very green and kind of flat and there were no real beaches as, as such not compared to like the beaches in Brazil So it just looked like a kind of bizarre, otherworldly paradise. And I think that kind of, you know, stayed with me as a place that one day I'd really like to visit. And it took me probably 20 years after that. And then in the early 10s, I went on a holiday for the first time. And, you know, I'd had a lifetime's worth of images of Rio by that stage. So fashion magazines, you know, films set in the favela, lots of news coverage about the carnival. And those things are, of course, true to an extent, but they're quite a stylized, westernized view of what those things are and what they mean. And often viewed in a quite a surfacey way, like fashion shoots shot on the beach without any real explanation other than these people look really hot. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when I first went there, I was, I'm not sure if surprised is the right word, but definitely I had my eyes opened about real life in Rio and in Brazil. And there are elements of all of those things that we see in Western culture. But as you get older and you travel more, you start to realize how narrow certain narratives are. And, you know, I, I one of the things which inspired me was Bruce Weber's Oh Rio book, which came out in 1986. Beautiful book, actually. Incredible book yeah. and spectacular portraits and really cool people and really beautiful. It really captured some kind of element of the energy of the city. But it became a template because, of course, in all business, when one thing is successful, people decide it looks good. So everyone else wants to copy it. And I think for probably about 30 years, the image of Rio that I saw tended to be like idealized beach bodies or particularly how women are portrayed, you know, what a gay body is. You know, it was all very specific and very sexualized and quite fetishistic. And you only saw really one sexuality, two genders 
very little kind of like racial diversity. And outside of Brazil, we're not really told how incredibly diverse it is. Mm -hmm. So when I first went to Rio in the tent, I was really kind of delightfully struck by how real it was and how much else there is going on in the city besides those things. And there are elements of truth in those stereotypes, like there are in all stereotypes. But really, the most interesting things are what lies behind that. And so over the course of time, I began to visit and revisit. I gave up my job in London to go traveling, and I spent a lot of time traveling around South America and the rest of Brazil. So I started going to Rio more and more, sometimes just for a few days or maybe a week before going on somewhere else in Brazil or South America. But every time I went to Rio, I kind of fell for it a little bit more. And ended it, up... it is an intoxicating city. I have to admit, even as a Brazilian, mm. I come from Sao Paulo, there's something addictive, almost dangerous, that, mm. that you end up falling in love a bit too much with the city. A hundred percent, that's yeah. right. You get there and there's, some, there's a very beautiful feeling in the air mm. in Rio that I can't put into words. And mm. I know Brazilian songwriters and writers try and do this. But there's something incredibly beautiful, intoxicating, alive, And also, when it rains there, there's a very special feeling there. There's a feeling of kind of real melancholy. There's like a beautiful sadness in being in Rio on a, on a rainy day. And there's just something on the streets there. You walk around, you smell it. You know, you walk past a supermarket, you can smell papaya. Or, you know, you smell fresh fish outside of fishmongers. Or there's tropical flowers outside the florists. And, you know, there's just such an incredible, diverse range of people there. It feels a bit like somewhere like New York or London, in that whoever you are, you will find a space in Rio to be yourself, and you'll find a way to feel at home there. And, of course, also, Brazilian people as a whole and in Rio are very welcoming. There's a warmth there. You don't feel intrusive about being there. So that made it both a delight for me to visit, but also then to work with people, to photograph. It felt very natural. I had a real affinity with this city and felt incredibly at home there. What about the queer communities in particular? Because, I mean, that's the focus of mm -hmm. the book as well. Were you surprised about what you've seen? Because, you know, of course, it's mentioned here in the book that I think most of the pictures were taken under a very conservative time in Brazil where Bolsonaro was in power and everything, but still life continued for those people as well in the city, right? Correct. And it was a very interesting time for me because I grew up in Northern Ireland in the 80s, which was then run by the Thatcher government, which was ultra-conservative, very strongly anti-gay. And similar to Bolsonaro, there was this kind of conflation of politics and religion. So you'd have right-wing politicians trying to be kind of, you know, present themselves as ultra-moral and ultra-sanctimonious. And of course, in those situations, any kind of minority, especially a sexual minority, then becomes a pawn in those discussions. So there were conversations that I was having translated and explained to me by local people where Bolsonaro or people from the government would say things about queer people, about trans people, which was stopping just short of, it's okay to go out and hurt them. There just seemed to be like an emboldening, not unlike Trump in America, in the way that he talks about black people or immigrants. They don't overtly say these people are trash and you can do whatever you like to them, but it's very strongly hinted at that this is, you know, this is what you can do and I will support you. So I was very aware of that and sort of connections between my own upbringing and queer people in Rio today. But at the same time, I'm also very aware that when you're in a minority, it becomes very tiresome when all you hear is, 
a kind of negative narrative whereby it's again going back to the 80s and to an extent the 90s in the uk where it was always like poor queer people you know anti-queer violence hiv aids things like this and it was a very narrow scope of communication so one thing i wanted to do in rio was both highlight the fact that this was a very difficult time for queer people but also saying that actually queer people are more alive and more open more proactive, more proudly themselves than at any time, possibly in the history of Brazil. I'm not an expert in the history of Brazilian culture, and you will tell me more, but... I agree. I think, in a way, the more rights they got as well, there's been a backlash, inevitable. So, in a way, at the same time, it was a bad time, but a good time on the other hand as well. Exactly. It really seemed to empower people. Mm. And what I hoped to see in the photographs or find in the people I was photographing was just really reflecting that almost quiet power of someone who has resilience and pride. And, you know, someone, another person in Brazil was explaining to me that often in the worst political and social situations in Brazil, it's still not going to stop Brazilian people living their lives. And I find that really inspiring and really like politicians and religious leaders rely on hopelessness as something to exploit. And there's, there was never a sense of hopelessness in Rio and People have smiles on their faces, you know, they, even in the worst of times, they can be angry with their government or angry with their situation, but they can take great pride in themselves and their own communities. And I was very lucky as well to know some people there who were able to introduce me into their communities. So there's a producer called Roddy Oliveira who set up a lot of the shoots that we did together and a stylist called Rafaela Pina who was brilliant and also has worked a lot in kind of favela culture. And so I met a lot of people who were just naturally part of these kind of really beautiful, colourful, developing, happy, intelligent communities. So really a lot of the photographs in the book, all I had to do was point the camera. And I just want to, you know, I wanted to shoot those people in the most respectful way and to say this is what, you know, a young queer person in Rio is, is looking like at the moment, how they're presenting themselves, what their attitude is. I think in some ways, even though a lot of the portraits in the book come across in quite an artistic way or even quite stylized, for me, it's actually mostly documentary. It's, you know, it's a record of someone else's, you know, presentation, if you like. And I I just kind of steered the camera in the right direction. Very powerful as well. If, I, if you don't mind, chapter five, mm-hmm. especially in the Brazilian context, the bullet wounds, mm-hmm. uh, feridas de bala. Yeah. I mean incredible photo shoot as well and again beautiful yes mm-hmm. stylized but also talks about urban violence in mm-hmm. a way as well which is also a big problem in Rio right that's right uh, who, who so is the, the model, subject yeah uh, the subject is a guy called Mateus and mm-hmm. his Instagram handle is Furo de Bala bullet mm-hmm. wound mm-hmm. and um, he comes from Brazil he's young he's very beautiful very mm-hmm. cool very intelligent he really thinks a lot about his presentation so, you know, he styled himself for these pictures. He's got really interesting tattoos and he's got a really interesting attitude, which is kind of very, that kind of quiet power that I find a lot in Rio, which is, you know, sort of someone who's very comfortable in their own skin and quite happy to show their skin in a way that here, certainly me growing up in Ireland, we're very uncomfortable in our own skin and very uncomfortable showing our skin. And he brought a really intelligent and creative approach and kind of directed himself in many ways. And again, 
when I talk about being lucky enough to hold a camera, he's a really good example of that. You know, we had some fun ideas. So he, he comes with blonde hair, which is kind of like quite a big thing in Brazil at the moment for kids to have bleached hair. So we thought it would be fun to maybe put a, an image of the Statue of Christ into his hair just to kind of just add something to the shoot. And he was, you know, he really embraced those ideas and brought all his own ideas as well. That's incredible. Tell us, William, I know this book will be on sale on Dover Street Market here in London. It's good timing, really, because it's carnival this weekend. And let's be honest, I think the whole month will be carnival in Brazil. Uh, but tell us where, if people are interested, uh, where can they purchase a copy? Okay, so initially it's going to be through Dover Street Market in London. Then after that, we're, I'm still looking at some international distributors. So probably the easiest way to get in touch if anyone's interested is via my Instagram, which is William Rice Studio. They can send me a message and hopefully over the coming months, I see the project as something which, you know, is going to last for the next few months. So hopefully we'll be getting some international distribution beyond that. And the dream, of course, will be to sell it in Brazil. I think you should. <laughs> But let's talk about the opening words for the book is, mm -hmm. is a lyric by Bjork, which yeah. I know You've worked with her before, right? You work with many other uh, music artists. But but tell us, why did you chose Wonderlust? Oh, well, I that? chose Wonderlust because it's A, a beautiful song. Mm. And Bjork's someone whose music has meant a lot to me in my life. Prior to working with her, I used to work in the music industry and eventually ended up working with her, which was, you know, one of the great thrills of my life. And Wonderlust, it talks about the idea of pushing yourself out of your comfort zones pushing yourself into the unfamiliar and being challenged by new situations. And I think that for me is a very kind of touching idea and one which really connects with me personally. And I think those words explain my intention in visiting Rio and making this book in a much better way than I could. And it's only a few lines, but it just sums up a mantra for life. Thank you very much, William. And for more information, go to William Rice Studio Instagram account. And that's it for this week's show. My thanks to our editor, Jack Jewers. Any comments or queries, email me, fernando, at fbandmonaco.com. And remember to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or at monaco.com. You've been listening to The Stack. I'm Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Until next time, it's goodbye from me. Thank you.